Welcome to Yachting Yarns. In this episode, I'm talking with legendary skipper Michael Spees. After competing in 44 Sydney to Hobart yacht races, he's become the guru of the sport, known and respected all around the world. I spoke with Michael while he was driving back home after competing in this year's Sydney to Hobart yacht race. You've got the nickname of the guru. Are you a guru? I don't know, just doing my best. Yeah, I've been doing it for a fair while, but yeah, I've seen that probably a bit too modest to sort of acknowledge, I guess. Well, there can't be many people who know as much about racing as you do. You have to know more than most people. Oh, sure. I've been doing it long enough. I've been doing it basically all my life, literally from the age of four, and I've been doing it professionally now for the better part of 40 years. Yeah, had a real job there for a fair while, but always looking at the clock and um, trying to get out, thinking when I could go sailing, so I've made the hard decision to do it professionally unfortunately it's worked out and I've had quite a long career and touch would continue to do so you know you've got to go where your heart is and my heart was certainly in sailing and you know, I say to anyone you know if you're looking at the watch and you're sort of dreaming about doing something and getting out of work to do what you love well perhaps that's what you should be doing and I was fortunate enough that the situation and the circumstances had changed enough to allow me to do it professionally like the first few years, I must admit, were quite hard, and um, you know, you're wondering where the next um, meal ticket's coming from. And certainly, wasn't going to didn't have a long-term plan then, but bit by bit, these have come in, and we enjoyed more and more success. And then, uh, you know, one thing led to the other. So, yeah, we're still doing it at a reasonably high level. And obviously, the last couple of years have been a bit harder, but we look like being on track and having a pretty full year this year. Um, and, and travelling overseas again, which is great. You said the age of yeah. four. You, you, you had salt in your blood from the age of four. Yeah. I grew from my late father um, in the junior classes, the Heron and um, then Northbridge Seniors. And, you know, I was away, um, you know, ever since I can, all my memories, you know, away various regattas on the weekend with my, um, my father and, my family or my mother at that stage and uh, yeah and then just one thing led to another and I was racing internationally from the age of seven. I won my first major international title at 70 years old that was the end of the minions in Auckland that was my first trip uh, essentially overseas and that's what it, it's basically snowballed from there So you do more than just race you actually design and build you get hands on with these boats don't you? I don't design, I mean, I, I optimise. I mean, it's, um, there's an international rating measurement system around that tries to create parity for all the Asian racing yachts, and that's what the, the handicap formula for the Rolex Sydney Hobart yacht race there, and there's some idiosyncrasies in the rule, and we seem to perhaps crack the code a little bit um, quicker and more uh, detailed than a lot of our opposition, and you know, and that's been quite a successful little sideline for us where, you know, people have seen fit to call us and, um, you know, fly us all over the world to get their boats going faster. But, you know, I've got a nucleus of guys I go racing with and, you know, there's not too many boats and uh, other people in the industry, there's not too many boats that we can't get going uh, a little bit better. And, you know, dealing with people and 
And the key thing is trying to keep the guys, the, the owners in the sport for a long time. I mean, it, a lot of, well, if I say a lot, there's a few, uh, same as any industry, there's a few people in the industry who perhaps just look at the, um, you know, a short-term fix for an owner and grab the money and run, but you try to massage them along so the experience is good and provide them good advice and that good advice tends to be good value for money and move with them and grow with them and you know I'm fortunate enough to have quite a few people globally that still relies and still trust us enough um, to provide that service and it's it's you know A it's rewarding and B it's um you know it, it it's you know kept the lights on for me for quite a fair few years. Well, that's good. I mean, if you can if you can make a living out of what you love, you never go to work, as they say. You never work a day in your life. I think that's true, and I think that's where I've been blessed. I really have been. You know, I you know I, I just can't imagine not doing it if that makes sense. I, I think you know, I've been fortunate enough to win five world championships for our country, and you know, I remember probably even twenty five or thirty years ago when I had won a world championship. Maybe I'll get one, and being a uh, Fortunate enough to parlay that into a few and you know, keep the momentum going. So hopefully, still a few boxes to tick and a few things on the bucket list to do. But you know, the last two years have certainly been hard. You know, and have curtailed a lot of our activities. But we managed to keep busy and active in that. Looking up for an exciting year this year with possibly some uh, racing get back in America and back up to Asia and Thailand, where we sort of tend to do four or five regattas a year. So um, your your work, your work as such, your play work, has, has taken you around the world? Oh, absolutely. You know, a, a pre-COVID year would probably consist of, um, you know, 12, 14 return long all flights a year, probably four regattas in America, um, maybe five, when I say regattas or long races down to Mexico or, you know, starting in LA down to Mexico. Um, I'm on that California-Mexican coast a fair bit, Ensenada. Uh, looks like we've possibly got a race from um, a thousand-mile race coming up the month after next, and march from San Diego down to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. That'll be a uh, five-day race for us. Um, you know, then some some of the key regattas in America, such as Long Beach Race Week, um, where we might ourselves to do. Rolex Big Bay Series in San Francisco this year, and, it, and we do do a lot of racing in Thailand, but you know, with, on both coasts, um, uh, out of Ocean Marina, out of Padia there, then down the coast Samui, back around, uh, then on the other coast, uh, Kings Cup out of Phuket, Phuket Race Week, uh, also out of Phuket, obviously. So really a small country, when you travel around the world... How do you think that other other countries, other sailing countries, view you and Australia? Australians are highly respected, and it makes it it's opened a lot of doors. Obviously, uh, you know, a watershed moment was Australia too, and that sort of well, we were certainly on the world map before then. But the Australians and the Kiwis, to a certain extent, we tend to box above our weight a eh, in terms of the population size for the results we get, um, in terms of innovation, in terms of the marine industry. Uh, you like you go and do say Long Beach Race Week, and uh, you're having a few beverages in the Yopma Bar after, and it's almost like going down the local half the time. Certainly, the same stands true in uh, 
in Thailand or, or Hong Kong when we're doing racing up there or China Cup. You know, there's probably, depending on the actual regatta, probably 25% are ANZACs there. So that's highly respected. And um, and the opportunities now, you know, I mean, I had to create most of my own opportunities, had to do quite a long apprenticeship. But, you know, the young guys now really have it, what well, I say, quite easy. You've got to have natural ability, natural talent, but the opportunities are there. You know, when I first started, you'd be scratching around to get a couple of days' work and an air to get out of the deal. And um, a good young sailor, up-and-coming sailor now can actually make a, you know, a quite a good livelihood that will set him up later in life, either in the industry or I'll give him base to expand his um, career and uh, diverse on it. And just the diversity, the hands-on effect that yeah, the life skills that you acquire and sailing is certainly a sport for life. I mean, here I am, um, very early 60s, where you, um, where I'm still on the run-on squad. You know, I mean, if I was, if I was playing football or that, I would have been in the, the coaching box for uh, the last 30 years. We just won the Festival of Sales down in Melbourne over the uh, last handful of days. And um, one of the guys I do do a lot of racing with, um, Ray Roberts, he's in the 70s and still the sharpest attack, still getting around the boat great. He steered the boat in a brilliant fashion and, you know, he assembles a very good team, a lot of professional guys and give them that support. But the best of my knowledge is there's no other sport in the world where you can actually, if you are good enough, to do it, that you can keep that longevity going. Uh, there's all sorts of people crewing the big races now because you've get, you get women, you get people who are disabled, you get all sorts of people. It's not just fit young men. So... The industry's been able to embrace these people. Absolute diverse sport. And then you've got the other side of the industry, like the symbiont industry, the the corporate, the hospitality side of it and all that. I mean, it's, that, that's, I've never been part of that, but the, the opportunities there, but what you can expand uh, locational-wise from the basic skills are, are, are pretty immense, you know. I mean, and, and then getting in, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to sail with, you know, arguably the best guys in the world and um, you always try to surround yourself with people who are better than you so you're always learning mm. um, when you do that I mean you, you pick up skills but I've started with guys who have got into the sport late in life dedicated there to it and, and they might have natural ability but they just apply themselves in the mechanics of the sport how things function how can I get better and it's it, 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 it's unique and when and other guys have got starts through being doing an apprenticeship, getting a start on, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, building boats. Well, they're sort of after and a good boat builder. They've always got that trade to fall back on, but then that's expanded to be, you know, professional sailors as well. So to, to that way of thinking, and, and it doesn't discriminate the sport. I mean, ladies, while they may have been um, few and far between when I did my first uh, Sydney Hobart race, what's that, 44, 45 years ago, you know, there are a handful of girls now. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd say it'd be you know close to fifteen or twenty percent. So while it's um, you know the diversity of the sport is there, and you can't really look at that as a representative number because you know the fact is that ladies go through uh, you know motherhood, etc., which will pull them out of the, the system for a few years. So it actually is quite a high percentage of participation, and your local sailing club, whether it's down on the local lake or your local river and all that. It's a, it, it's a very gender-diverse sport 
and then so many of the uh, sailing clubs, the local locals have um, uh, sailability, you know, catering for sailors with disability. What a great way to to get people out there involved with a healthy sport, and it is a healthy sport. Our, our record at the uh, Paralympics in sailing before the sailing was removed from there, there's talk that it'll come back. You know, we've got gold medalists, um, multiple gold medal winners. I mean, it is just a great, diverse sport. There's, there's no barriers, there's no social barriers. I mean, you name another sport, as I said, you're at sea, you're in your enclosed environment, there's no shops out there, there's no... Um, what you basically leave with, and it wouldn't matter if you've got a billionaire, a millionaire, and a first-year apprentice on there, you're all the same out there. There's no special treatment, and you're all pulling the same direction, trying to get the boat and the boat there a safely and leave with the best result possible. I mean, it's, what a great, great equaliser. Um, I knew a guy years ago who did sit in a Hobart, and he was blind. Ah, uh, yeah, there's a um, David Pescard, uh put together started disabled um, taking disabled sailors Turf Hurley our um, well known um, gold medalist he's done a Sydney to Hobart race in a, in a wheelchair and you know with Dylan uh, Alcott our Australian of the year I mean um, and what he's done with tennis I mean it's a great sport sailing's a great equaliser too I remember having actually a beer with um, with Kurt Hurley at the Customs House in Hobart and having a chat to oh, I never met him he embraced it, he thought the sport was great and no, no doubt he'll be back at some stage but you know as I said I, I sounded like I'm a big advocate for the diversity and the opportunities um, the sport or code offers it is because I am and I mean it, it is pretty unique in the opportunities, career paths diversity you know there, there are no barriers and the diversity of the sport and the accessibility of the sport can just be highlighted by the fact that if you look at out there, Beast Australia Day Honours, um, a good friend of mine who's volunteered at a local club um, was recognised for his efforts in introducing over 3,000 kids and families to the sport. So, And that's just at a local uh, non-profit club. So... The, the, the urban myth that it's a, an exclusive sport, well, yes, certainly is at a high level and a Grand Prix level, but generally accessible to, um, you know, family members, they're subsidised club memberships, and it, and often the, the junior clubs, the local clubs, and whether it's on your local river or lake, will have equipment that you and welcome you into the club, welcome the families into the club, and, and, and start that path to a whether you just want to participate or be safe or compete or and then compete at a higher level, but the, the, the pathways and the mechanisms are there and it's, it's, it's a great, healthy environment. You know, a high emphasis on safety, high emphasis on um, making the kids feel safe and welcome, welcoming the families. It's just, uh, it, it just epitomises everything that is good, I believe, about uh, sport in Australia. Mm-hmm. So... You're, of course, extremely well-known as the guy who's done 44 Sydney to Hobart yacht races. How did you get onto your first one? Was that hard? A lot harder then than it was now. So I was 16 by memory. Um, and I had to do an apprenticeship. I was lucky, I was lucky enough that the, we had a family yacht and I used to work on that. And my late father said you can take it away in your school holiday. So I got a private mission, but I used to 
work at lunchtime in my school to do my homework, so on Friday afternoon I could stroll the uh, docks of the Cruising Night Club of Australia, which is a host club of the uh, Sydney Hobart, looking to try to get on any boat I possibly could for an overnight race. And I had to sail on some pretty bad boats to get recognised. And then I, a couple of the guys recognised that gave me a break, a guy by the name of Sid Fisher, who... Uh, is synonymous with these string of boats are uh, now retired, but ragamuffins. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, mate, you're probably good enough to come with us. And But, yeah, I, I mean, I had to work hard to get to get on those boats in those days, whereas the kids today, uh, they almost have a rite of passage now. I mean, it's it's a lot easier. There are more boats. But, yeah, good luck to the guys getting into the sport now. So what, what's been your worst and your best experiences doing a Sydney to Hobart? I mean, I've been fortunate enough to break the record. I've been fortunate enough to skip a boat that's one line on us. I've been fortunate enough to win overall on handicap skipping a boat. I, I think you know, it's hard to sort of consolidate those into one favourite favorite memory. But taking the race record when I was case skip at Nokia, uh, I think the record was two days, 14 hours, and we smashed that to one day, 19 uh, hours and 48 minutes. That's quite clearly very, very special. And then the worst ones, I guess, was having to attend the go to friends' funerals in 1998 and um, after the tragedy of the 98 race. And, you know, that, that was just hard for the whole yachting community. But, I mean, any tragedy is compounded if you can't improve the situation around it. And obviously it was a wake-up call that there were some chinks in the armour uh, safety-wise. We all embraced that. I've volunteered a lot of my time and uh, passion and energy into putting in a lot about making our sport safe, uh, safer by being a safety and sea instructor. We developed a course um, that encompasses the life raft drill and flare drill and all those shortcomings perhaps that were highlighted um, in that tragedy. Um, you know, we've moved on hopefully beyond it. The sport is a lot safer now. So, yes, while that was absolutely devastating at the time my mates who we have lost there is a positive ongoing legacy and you know, you try not to dwell too much on the negatives but you know, it's, it's certainly a wake up call that you know you never take on the ocean because the ocean will always win there's still been the occasional bump and broken bone on some of these big trips hasn't there? Oh of course no, and, not, and not so much in the ocean but you know when I was doing the 18 foot skiffs I mean Every other uh, Saturday night, we're up at Casualty at St Vincent's, about three or four of us. I mean, you know, I look at my body now and there are not too many bones that haven't been broken and scars and stitches and wax on the head and all that. I mean, that's part and parcel of it, the same as any sport. But I shouldn't laugh, but it's kind of funny. You go, you do a race and you end up in the hospital. Well, you know, the, the 18 foot skips at that time, I mean, they were pretty brutal and, you know, it wasn't unusual at all. You're getting stitched up or something reset on the Saturday night, then trying to get back out of the water on the Sunday. So for you and anybody else who's involved in the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race, how does that affect your Christmas? The whole thing is unique. I mean, it's Christmas Day has always been Boxing Day Eve. Um, you know, the, the relevance, the importance, the festivities at Christmas have always been overridden by preparing for Boxing Day. That That's the one day of the year that you really focus on. Last year's race has just finished. We're already focusing on how we can do it better next year and we're putting a plan in place. 
but you start, you come out of the harbour and it doesn't matter how many done, you're done, you've still got butterflies in your stomach, you're, you're still nervous, you're still respectful of the elements, um, come out Sydney Heads, all the spectator boats, you know, the, the sound of the helicopters overhead because you can't you can't even hear yourself on the boat and uh, all the media hype when you're normally a little bit different this year because it was a, a COVID hotspot. Um, you know, like the media were banned this year from the docks and the families fared well in here, but you make your spay down New South Wales coast, we've got the real big hiding this year, and you get down to the Tasmanian coast, you get sight of that, that unique coastline, the organ pipes and Tasman Island, and then you make your way across Storm Bay, which half the time the name, you know, there's a reason it's called Storm Bay, mm. up the, up the uh, Derwent River, and then to be greeted no matter what time of the day or night you finish by passionate locals that win, lose, draw and different just are happy to have you there. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very unique and humbling experience. It must be a big party in Hobart over the next couple of days. It must be absolutely fabulous. Oh, it has. It's a you know, responsible service of alcohol, but back in the old days it certainly used to be a lot wilder and um, and the speed of the big boats now, the 100-footers, you know, while we used to be at sea for you know, four or five days, the, the big base now we're doing it in two and, you know, with the professional crew basis, I mean, a lot of the guys will have another regatta to fly to, particularly like the overseas, and they'll be on the first plane out. So that's detracted a bit from the party atmosphere, but, you know, we hang always try to hang around there for, you know, a few days after, support the taste of Tasmania, support the local economy and chill out, enjoy the food, enjoy the wine and, um, yeah, move on. But, you yeah, know, it's probably not as party central as it used to be but that's you know neither is the world either so but then you've got to get the boat back all those people who've sailed down to hobart they don't stay they've got to get home so what's the what's the return trip like uh look that is it's one of the easiest ways to get experience you know it's, um you know you, you run it more on a skeleton crew there's no deadline per se you're not pushing the boat and you know, when I first started, before I did my first Rolex Indian Hobart race, I actually did the return trip um, and got experience that way, got some miles under the belt. Yeah, but that, that's another really, really, really good way of getting some quality experience and, and working out for yourself, you know, is this for me? And the way of getting um, some miles in associating yourself with the boat, certainly how some of the doors opened for me, once again, doing an apprenticeship, it puts off the throttle a lot, but it's you still go through the motions of, you know, do you get seasick, you know, if you're starting out, do you, can you eat at sea? If you're fortunate enough to surround yourself with good people, you're learning a lot and, you know, and in a safe environment. And it's not like when you're coming back, you're, if the forecast is bad, well, you don't proceed, you know, you've got that much, whereas when you're racing, you push on regardless and, you know, obviously in a safe way, in a, a sensible and seamanlike way, but um, certainly return, the return trip is a, a, another chapter and a part of the sport. Do the same people who go down come back or do they have different crews bringing the boats back? Uh, you normally find there's two or three nucleus that'll stay with the boat who will be there full time and then there'll be what we call the delivery crew will fly in and, as I said, they may be a combination of Perhaps, uh, you know, guys with lesser experience trying to get more experience. You know, the wives and girlfriends, it certainly opens doors for them to get miles under their belt without being thrown in the 
heat of the battle in the racing situation. And it looks good on someone's CV, then the fact that you got there and that can open the door to be part of a race group moving forward, if in fact that's how you want to go. I mean, some people take a couple of weeks, explore all the nooks and crannies up the Tassie coast, drop a fishing line over, whereas some do it in a more direct manner and let's get on, um, you know, get back as quick as we can while respecting the elements and the weather and the ocean. Yeah, are you are you a bit of a weather expert? Yeah, you know, I've often asked how things changed over the years you've been doing and the weather forecasting has certainly improved and the access to the layperson even without having to go to subscription weather now has certainly improved and, you know, we did make mention of the 1998 race. I meant that the developments in weather forecasting in that last, what's that, 98 to now, 24, 23 or 24 years, is just astronomic. You know, the other areas um, have improved with the clothing we wore. In those days, the old days used to, like oil skin jackets and greasy wool jumpers, now we've got lightweight thermals and, you know, used to be wet and cold for four or five days. Now you're the improvements in the clothing and all that are, are, are good. But get back to your question, yeah, I understand the weather and probably more than the average person, but in terms of being an expert, you know, we, we have paid navigators on board and people who do our weather routing for, uh, for us. So, but, you know, just knowing what to expect, when to expect it, how to utilise that to get the boat there quicker at a better angle or a faster speed. The days of the navigator just telling you where you are well and truly gone. I mean, his, his job now is a really diverse job of performance analysis and coordinating that performance analysis with the available weather data and the forecast of weather data. Some of the software we've got on board now is pretty impressive. When I first started, you know, like it, you wouldn't have even dreamt that the sport would develop that fast and that to that extent in the, the 40 plus years we've been doing it. It's, it really is chalk and cheese. So tell me, Michael, would you ever just take your boat and go sailing around the world and stop at tropical islands and and drink Mai Tais and just sit back and not race? Um, The last part I certainly do, the Mai Tai bit, but um, it sounds odd, but I've actually got a powerboat. I go away cruising on a powerboat, my powerboat, and, yeah, I enjoy it. I like chilling out, but, no, I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, and I couldn't. It just doesn't hold. You know, I've been fortunate enough to see the most parts of the world, um, you know, year in, year out for the last 30-odd years, um, every nook and cranny, you know, of, you know, doing regattas in bizarre places or major races in bizarre places. So, you know, the attraction of actually sailing around the world doesn't hold that much attraction to me, to be honest, um, in, in, in at a leisurely pace. Because, you know, you're mentioning about moving the boat, so I think I've done something like 300 thousand miles delivery miles moving boats back from races or various parts of the world and before i started getting paid to race got paid to deliver boats so you know, i've certainly done my fair share of delivery so that's probably not the bit of the shine off the the world cruising bit but you know i can certainly understand why people do it you know the sights they see but you know i think i'm a bit like a uh you know, I, I need to be running on 45 RPM, not 33 and a third, you know. I think I'm, um, you know, it's, it's the heat of the battle and the competition that really is probably the biggest attraction to me and the, the achievement and the, the personal satisfaction I get of making boats go faster.
<laughs> You're the speed demon. So I'm going to finish up by asking you, what sort of watch collection do you have? It seems to be watches and sailing go together. Yeah, I've got a couple of special watches, obviously. So winning the Rolex Sydney to Hobart race, you get an engraved Rolex at the high end of the range that you can't buy. So you could be a multi-multi-billionaire, but you can't buy them. So and probably my favourite watch, and it's probably not related to what we're talking about now, is the watch my late grandfather left me, and um, he was a butcher. He was very generous with his staff. He had two apprentices that um, that he took on, and when he was ready to retire at quite a young age, he basically set them up with a shop in George Street in Sydney. And then there was a meat strike. He was the only one who could get meat in Australia, and basically they worked 24 hours for three weeks um there was an abattoir strike that worked 24 hours for three weeks around the clock and they were the only ones in sydney had meat and uh the takings of that they paid back the uh shop in that three weeks and i've got the engraved thing um his name was nick dear nick will never forget you and that's uh, gold watch nothing uh overly flash but that that holds a very special place in my heart as well and then you know i've got various other watches of various other brands and all been engraved and all that, but um, probably the Rolex and obviously my late grandfather's watch that was bequeathed to me is probably the two special ones. So Rolex give you a special watch. There's a special one that's just for the race. Well, I think it's the uh, Oyster Perpetual, but, yeah, it's they sponsor the race and have for the last two decades. Uh, they give one to the Lion Office winner and one to the overall winner on Handicap, um, and it's engraved with the... Uh, what it is, the event on the, the backside, the part that touches your skin. And um, as I said, you, 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 you can't buy them. Some owners in the past, have, when they've won, gone out and bought them for all their crew members. But while they may be a Rolex, they're not the authentic actual watch that you win one for winning the race. And, you know, as I said, guys have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to get them and fall them short. Yeah, I have one and uh, that too is very special. I bet you don't wear it. I bet you're careful, keep it all locked away and keep it you nice. Drag, you, drag, you drag it out on special occasions and relevant occasions, but, yeah, not too often. So. Well, that's right. It becomes a little treasure that you, you keep yeah, keep yeah, nice. Family heirloom almost. But, yeah, yeah, I've got a drawer full of other stuff there that accumulated over the years, but, as I said, they're the two special ones. Oh, has your house got lots of awards and things all through it? Do you have, a like, a museum? Uh, to be honest... Um, my previous home was more a showcase without big noting. Yes, I've accumulated a fair bit of memorabilia and uh, trophies and that over, and I've rationalised it now. So I've just got a couple of key things on show, and the rest of it's sort of taking up space in a, a special cupboard there. That but occasionally I'll go to it and flick through the photos and flick through the plaques and tr- flick through the trophies and, you know, and just have some quiet time reminiscing by myself, and I'll probably do that three or four times a year and it provides motivation to keep going you know while you still can you know none of us are getting any younger and um, obviously the older you get the harder it gets um you know in fact my partner she's taken up golf for the last handful of years and there's probably more golf trophies around than sailing trophies but yeah there's a couple of uh things around there that hold special things like winning the my first world championship and winning sydney hobart that takes a you know but it, Modestly and tastefully done. Very, very good. Okay, well, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for all your time. I've really My enjoyed pleasure. talking to you. All right, no good chatting, eh? 
That's it for this episode of Yachting Yarns. Thanks to Michael Spees. Don't forget to check out the Yachting Yarns Facebook page for more information on other podcasts. Wherever you're listening around the world, thank you for taking an interest in these yachting stories. I'm Linda Woods. Bye for now.